Today on Podcast by the Bay, we speak with longtime journalist and editor of the San Mateo Journal, John Mays. It is our job. And that's sort of what I find most rewarding is that we're able to find ways to help people in whatever form we can. And that's kind of like the mission, right? That's kind of like the mission that we want to do is, is help people and use our resources and our knowledge of the community to get people the help they need. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com And now... Another podcast by the Bay. Well, happy Thursday. Yeah. This is John Mays with the Daily Journal. I'm Patrick Sullivan with Podcast by the Bay. Thanks, John, for taking the time to uh, have a short interview with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, um, I appreciate it. Uh, John, you're a native San Franciscan? Yes. Okay, I'm I'm actually a second-generation San Franciscan. Did you grow up in the city? No. So I was born at Children's Hospital and then lived there for six years. And then we moved down to Los Gatos. Lived there um, till I was 13, moved back to the city for one year. And then for high school and college, I was in Florida. So my, my dad moved to Florida uh, for a job opportunity. And um, then as soon as I graduated, not as soon as, but uh, when I graduated from college, I moved back here uh, to San Francisco. Um, and then I'd say 15 years ago, moved down to the peninsula. Um, and then have been in San Mateo. I moved, we moved to Burlingame. I moved in with my wife, who was then my girlfriend, and then we got married, and then uh, got a house in uh, in San Mateo, and that's where we live. John's very unique because he's got the uh, one of the only papers here in the peninsula that, that actually has news out there in, in print form, too. Um, you, when did you pick over the paper? So the paper started in 2000. So before that, I worked for the San Mateo Independent. The San Mateo Weekly became the San Mateo Independent, which was a weekly, then a twice weekly. I did that for three years from 97 to 2000. Uh, when the Daily Journal started, um, I came in August 20, uh, 2000. I came aboard in the, at the end of October in 2000 um, as managing editor. So I was managing editor for a year. Then the editor left, and I became editor-in-chief, and then I've been editor-in-chief since. Well, you know, we, we applaud you in the peninsula because you've had an opportunity to go in through COVID and also a lot of changes with, like, now we, we have the Internet, we have podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, we have social media, uh, but, but you've survived. Um, yeah. And um, give us a little bit of background how difficult it is to get a production of a paper out there because I think a lot of people in the audience don't realize that you have a lot of parts in the machinery that need to work and if they don't work you can't get that paper out yeah um i mean uh, we're not a 24 hour a day operation but we're a 20 hour a day operation so um our paper is printed at four in the morning and uh the drivers pick it up and they distribute it the uh, sales people come in 
early in the morning. Um, the reporters uh, usually work from home for a little bit before they come in. They're usually in the office between 20, uh, 10 and noon. Um, I work from home uh, in the morning and I come in around noon or so and work until about 8.30 or 9. Um, and so during that time, uh, between noon and 8.30, I am... First of all, I mean, I get probably like three or four hundred emails a day, uh, and that's excluding spam. That's you know emails I have to address in some way, right? Um, so I do that basically from seven a.m. to midnight, um, with you know breaks in between, obviously. But um, you know the, the core of the work is in the office where I'm working with the reporters on their stories, and then dealing with um, um, you know emails and calls, and um, sort of working with the reporters to uh, make sure that the stories are strong. Um, and then around four or five, um, start thinking about um, what the paper will look like the next day. So I'm scanning the the international, national, state, and um, in uh, business cues to see what the big story is. Right. Sometimes we'll usually we'll put one AP story, Associated Press story, on the front um, that's of interest, and then um, you know identify sort of what the front page will look like. I'm starting to edit. Uh, content edit stories, then I send them over to the copy editor, sends them over to the page designer, he puts them on the page. I proof the pages, um, get in the last minute stories or so, and then we um, go to bed, as the term is, um, anywhere between, the, that's putting the paper to bed, is basically sending it to the press. Um, anywhere between, it's about 11 o'clock, um, but midnight, and then the latest we ever go, usually on election night, is about 1.30 or 2, but the latest we ever went was 3.30, which was right on time for a 4, 4 a.m. Um, press run. How big is your audience base? I mean, how many people out there? I know you've got two bases. You've got distribution, and then you also have people that are... Right. Uh, so our total spread. readership is 83,000, right? And that includes um, print readers and um, online as well. Um we have way more print readers than online, um, but the online is growing. It grew quite a bit during COVID, obviously because people were at home and not going out and picking up the paper. People weren't reading in coffee shops and, and that kind of thing. So uh, it picked up there. Uh, we dropped the paywall um, for a couple months during COVID because we felt like it was important for people to get information about what was happening. You know, it was a crisis, right? And then we had to... Um, put the paywall back up because, you know, I mean, Trader Joe's wasn't giving away bread during COVID. I mean, you still have to make a, make a living. Um, so, and we were concerned about the audience dropping off, but it didn't, it drifted down a little bit, then it started picking up again. So, uh, I mean, that's the next generation really, right? So people talk about um, newspapers and dying newspapers and the dying news industry and all that kind of thing, but it's not really, it's not dying by any means. It's just taking a different form. So people talk about, you know, we might be the last newspaper in San Mateo County, and that's true, right? There's been probably about 20 to 25 newspapers in San Mateo County since the mid-1800s in various forms, weekly, daily, all sorts of things. Uh, and we might be the last one who's headquartered here, but we also are the first website, news website. And so I kind of look at it that way. Um, we're not the last newspaper we might be, but we're also the first to go into this new generation, which is kind of exciting, really. Okay, let's kind of backdoor a little bit just mm -hmm. for the audience. How did you get into uh, journalism, and, and do you consider your paper to have journalists data out there, or information? Do you, do you, do you, could you identify yourself as a journalist? Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah, I okay. mean that's what that's my profession. Right? right. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm sorry, I'm not clear on the question. Well, when you know journalism is actually writing an article with some content uh-huh. and some opinions on it, sometimes um, um, whether it's social media or an Inquirer magazine, they're they're pumping an agenda. You're not doing that. You're trying to report news. Can you sure. tell us what reporting okay, news I got is? You. Yeah, I mean basically we it's real simple. I mean we just report what happened, right? So um, this. It, our news stories are basically a summation of something that we found to be interesting and newsworthy and new, right? So that's what we write about. Um, we don't have our own opinion in our news stories, but we do allow for an exchange of opinions through the people that we interview or the people who speak that, you know, for instance, at a meeting, right? That's their opinion sometimes. And so we'll include that and try to balance that out as much as possible with um, people who have different points of view. It's not necessarily this point of view than the opposing point of view, right? People get that, that we have to like, somehow there's this formula that we have to follow, but it's just a variety of points of view kind of like illustrating the sense of the community in that point in time. Right. So that's what we strive to do. Um, So as far as social media, that's a different animal altogether. We post our stories on social media and people can do whatever they want with them. They can say that they're garbage, they're good. They can share, they can, Share their opinions. That's their right. Um, and as far as the inquirer, um, I mean, that's like a different animal altogether. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, journalism is basically just um, a, a, a journal of, of what um, is happening in the community. And I think we do that pretty well. You've been doing this for over 30 years. What got you interested in doing this? So it's not 30 years. Um, <laughs> is it more? No, no, it's about 25. 25, right. okay. So um, not there yet. But okay. um, I mean, I guess, I mean, if you consider college and, and high school, yeah, maybe so. Um, my, so what got, in, got me into it is, uh, you know, my grandmother was a newspaper editor um, in the Central Valley in Lodi. And, uh, and actually in Lawford, which is outside of Lodi. Um, but she worked for the Lodi Sentinel and she worked for some other papers. And I used to uh, visit during the summers um, to their farm. They had a farm. And... She would uh, type on a manual typewriter, and she also smoked Marlboro Reds. And so when she typed fast and furiously on this old manual typewriter, slamming the carriage across with the smoke going, it seemed pretty fun. Now, I was kind of interesting that Marlboro Red was the first female filtered cigarette. So even though we, okay. we attach it to the cowboy and all right. that kind of stuff, it was actually the first filtered cigarette for women. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay, well, that's a fun fact. Uh, but... Uh, so that was interesting to me, and um, but that's not why I got into journalism. I think it was mainly, um, you know, when she went out in the community and I went with her, um, there was always there were always people sort of approaching her with story ideas, asking for help. Um, you know, I have a story to tell you, right? And so she was able to sort of be a connector in the community, right? So people are able to were able to. Uh, go through her to tell their story and to seek guidance and get help. And I felt like that was a pretty important role to have in a society. And it wasn't, and there was a certain amount of independence to it. So she didn't work for anyone except for the newspaper. So she could decide what was important. Right. And I think that um, people lose sight of the fact that it is important to have an independent um, arbiter of truth. And so we, so that care, I carry that with me and I feel like that's, um, was imbued in me in a kind of an early age. And 
just as soon as I could get going with, with writing and newspapers, I did. So I started a newspaper when I was in eighth grade and uh, worked on my high school newspaper. And, and I didn't get a journalism degree. I got an English and comparative literature degree, but started a magazine um, for Gen X with a friend of mine and did that. And so I've always kind of been in that um, in that profession that that wanted to just tell stories, right? Tell the community stories, be a reflection of the community and its values and sort of change with the times. And I think that we've done that over the you, years. You remind me of my interview with Mark Simon. Now, Mark Simon obviously was a journalist major and, and his journalism started at Crestmore High School. Mm-hmm. And then he decided that his teacher went to Skyline and he ended up taking journalism in Skyline and then graduated. But he's been in it for over 50 years. Uh, he has his unique style like you have, you've got your style. Now, mm-hmm. That's good to hear. Uh, you know, just so the audience has an idea, how many people you need to operate this uh, daily journal? Um, I mean, it depends, right? Like 25 or so total. Okay. Right. It's a pretty small operation. Yeah. Well, we admire that you, during the COVID time, that you were able to survive. Um, I yes. know, I, I, yeah, I know that it had been real difficult on all parts. Yeah. And I, as you know, local government had to depend on the government to help mm-hmm. them out to survive, right, too. Right, um, Do you think newspapers are going to survive in the next five years? Next five years? Yeah, sure. Um, in my lifetime, probably not, right? In your lifetime, definitely not. Um, and uh, I, I think the idea of a newspaper, the paper itself is uh is dying out and i don't necessarily think that that's that awful of a thing right like i mean i like newspapers and i've you know i get newspapers delivered to my house i always have i enjoy the the format but most people are pretty comfortable with getting news in a digital form and if we really think about the environmental impact of the the paper production itself uh even though most of our paper is recycled but um and then the physical driving of the papers around the distribution points and the expenses of that, um, you know, printing the paper itself is our biggest expense. And I think that if we could use that money in different ways, we could reinvest into the newsroom, right? But we have to figure out a way to make that work. And so that's sort of the next step. And I think all newspaper publishers are starting to think about how to do that. Um, and we're thinking about it just as, as much as anyone else. Do you, do you read any, um, Washington uh, Post or the Wall Street Journal online yourself? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so you, yeah. You, you're, also, you're also... Yeah, I read, I read a lot of newspapers online okay. and in print, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, that's sort of uh, what makes this job fun is that I enjoy doing that, and that's my work, too. So I would do it even if I didn't have this job, but I happen to have this job that I'm required to know what's going on. Um, so it makes it pretty fun. So are, are we all also leading up to, you know, people like that, touch of a newspaper or the touch of a book you think right. the books are going to be gone by the wayside too i don't know i mean maybe i mean i look at do you know where the nearest bookstore is yes can you name it um uh, dalton's or whatever it is over there in barnes and noble barnes right? and, no- barnes barnes and, and no- noble yeah. there's one in downtown san mateo b street books right and you oh yeah that one's in. um i don't know of anyone else right yeah uh, so people I'm, aren't interested in books i am i read books but um you know, maybe people buy them online, but usually, I don't know if people read books anymore. Do they? I mean, they must, um, I do, right? Yeah, yeah, I do yeah, too. I, do too yeah. um, I mean, yeah, I, of course people do, but um, but I think that, you know, the Kindle or whatever, those, uh, it's it's going to be as uh, as easy. I mean, and no one cried when the town crier went out of business when uh, the printing press was uh, invented in 1440. 
right? <laughs> it's just new technology, right? right? Like, I mean, it just happens. Um, radio had to shift, TV had to shift, uh, news agencies had to shift over time. Um, and that's just what's happening. And it makes sense. It makes sense to do it this way. So I think there are people who like the, the physical contact of the paper, but the next generation certainly doesn't. Um, they don't even write notes on, on paper anymore. They write notes on their phone. So these portable uh, communication devices are going to be the future. I mean, they are the future. They're, they're almost our present. Well, what do you see how you're going to uh, expand your newspaper? You're, you're looking for more digital subscriptions. Um, is, that the, is that the big way to draw your audience? How do you think you're going to be able to draw a larger audience? Um, I mean, I, I, sure. I mean, digital is sort of the, the next stage. And so by when we move to a subscription uh, formula, um, what was it, about three, four years ago, um, you know, people were – so we've always had a website from the get-go. Um, and it was free. And then we decided to start charging for it. And the reason why we charge for it is because we don't make that much money online, right? So if you're just reading it online, we need to capture that 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 money, right, uh, to pay for the reporting and paying for all the services that we provide. Um, and so people were hesitant at first, and then they just sort of uh, got with the program. And I think that most news uh, agencies have some sort of subscription model now. And I think that growing subscriber uh, or ha- subscriber growth online is sort of the next model. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said before, I, I don't know, know if that's necessarily bad. You know, you, you have, um, you know, we're going to kind of get into politics a little bit in the, okay. in the thing. Um, the local paper here, just as well as the uh, local paper in Foster City or Redwood City endorse candidates for mm-hmm. for elective office. Um, how much value do you give it for endorsements uh, from the newspaper? Do you do you think it attributes to uh, a 3% uh, factor or 5% factor? Is there any model that you feel that by endorsing a, a somebody for either uh, city council or assembly or board of supervisors, how much weight do you think that holds in, in your opinion? Uh, when you say 3 to 5%, Factor. What do you mean by that? Vote factor. I mean. Oh, what is our influence? Yeah. No idea. I don't know. You have no, I have no idea. idea. I mean, I, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, we haven't quantified that in any form. Um, the reason why we endorse is because we feel like it's our obligation, right? So, I mean, it would be tremendously easier if we didn't, because people get real touchy about these things. Um, but we feel that it's our obligation as a newspaper to use our experience covering communities for X amount of years, knowing these issues from top to bottom, asking questions of the candidates, asking them what they know about and what their philosophy is. And then we come up with a recommendation of who we think the best candidate for a certain position is. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that person wins or loses, that's not really up to us, obviously, right? And doesn't mean that we were right or wrong. We don't choose our endorsements based on who we think will win we just think that these this is our recommendation and they're and sometimes they're very difficult to make um i applaud anyone who runs for office i mean it's it's not easy by any means as you know right Mm -hmm. you've done it um several times and and you were successful right on maybe your fifth fifth try right well it was a little bit more than five more than five more than five believe it right how many times was seven uh that was my eighth race eighth race so eighth eighth time is the charm right so so I respect that. Um, so we, we just do it as a, as a community service, right? So people might look to us to see what we think. 
Um, but it's not like we think we're we're 100% right. I mean, sometimes there are candidates who we have not endorsed who have turned out to be pretty good council members or school board members. And we um, work with them just as we work with anyone else. Um, but, um, you know, it's not like we think that the the candidates who run and we don't endorse are bad. We just think that the other ones are, are better. Okay, looking at it as a private citizen yourself, uh-huh. uh, do you think there's some credibility for a candidate that has endorsements from uh, an assemblyman or a board of supervisors? In, in your perspective, right. not necessarily... I don't know how other groups do their endorsements. I don't know how individuals do their endorsements. I don't know how an assemblyman or assembly woman, or assembly member or a member of Congress or a city council member what their process is. I have no idea. So for me, it's not that it's not it doesn't factor into our decisions if someone has a bunch of endorsements um, because I don't know how that was done. I don't know if it was I support you for this and so can you support me for that. A lot of them are dual endorsements. Um, so we just we just go through our process, which is pretty straightforward, is that we um, have a list of questions and we um, we ask them in um, in person or on Zoom and we have a questionnaire now um, that helps a little bit about philosophy and that kind of thing. And then uh, just go from there. So um, I, don't, I don't know how that is done by other agencies. It doesn't really factor in, in our decisions at all. Okay. You have a couple of columnists, maybe two or three you have um, that talk about politics, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Mark Simon or Sue Lempert. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's another gentleman that always gets an article in there, too. I forget his name. Are you talking about John Horgan? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, a lot of these people have had some discussion on district elections, and as you know, a mm-hmm. lot of the cities have turned to district elections. What's your opinion on district elections? Um, it's too—I mean, honestly, it's too soon to tell. I mean, the whole idea was that it was supposed to make it easier for uh, candidates to to campaign, right? So, if you have a smaller area and you represent it, um, then you don't have to campaign for the whole city or the whole county or the whole district. Right, it's just the um, when, when I say district, I mean school district too. I think they call school it, like, districts too. Yeah, have districts yeah. within the district, right. or they call them wards or areas or right. whatever. Um, so the idea is to have to further representation. I think the goal overall is very strong, and I think that um, you know the more representation, the more diversity that we can have on our uh, on our boards and councils, I think the better. Um, there's been some changes that happen, and I think that with any big change, sometimes it's not always perfect and some people who probably would be good in a certain position lost their position because of it. And I think that's just how change happens. Right. And we all sort of settle in and, 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 um, figure it out. Um, but I think it's kind of too soon to tell what the overall impact is, uh, on our governance because we're just not, not every, I mean, Foster city doesn't have district elections. No, right? Right. So not everyone's yeah. doing it. So we're just starting. So I think maybe in five, ten years or so, we'll have more of an understanding of how it went. But my my guess is that it 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 will be a positive change, and it doesn't even matter what I think because it's it's happening. And so we just have to. If if you don't like it, you have to deal with it. If you do like it, then that's good for you. Yeah, the the kind of the essence is you're correct. The uh, district election was trying to be an equalizer economically right. Right. for someone to be able to run for public yeah. office, which is a, a great idea, and then also an economic thing for maybe different social economic right. and, and 
different right. racial one ethnicities. of the one of the thing that I was sort of thinking about is that it might be worthwhile so how much does a a council member make in Foster City per month is like five hundred bucks or something like that. Well, yeah, it's, it's about five hundred. Five hundred bucks. Yeah. So five hundred bucks is not. I mean, that's like a a stipend, really. So right. and most people either have to be have to have a different job, right, or be retired, or somehow be able to swing it. You know, maybe they just don't work. Or they have a, a a partner who works and they can afford it. Um, I think. I mean, this is just an idea I've been kicking around, and I'm, I haven't like fully formed it, but it might be worthwhile to really think about paying council members a full salary to do the job full time. Um, because as you know, the work is full time. You, you spend a lot of time doing this and meeting with people and, mm-hmm. and having conversations, the meetings and reading, you know, all the agenda packets, constituent work, all of that. And then that way it would provide a little bit more diversity on a council because people could actually do that as a job. Um, so it's just something I was thinking about um, as a way to make it so more regular people, um, you know, if you pay whatever the, I don't know, I don't know how you figure it out, but like a, a normal wage that someone would get, you might be able to get some some more average people that have real life experience on a council rather than, you know, um, activist retirees or, or people who are, um, you know, able to make it work or whatever. So. I, I think that's a great idea. I've heard of a couple of uh, city council people who have mentioned that same thing. Right, so, right. So it sounds like a good idea. Um, a, a tough question. Have you ever thought of running for public office? No. No, okay. that's not for me. No, it's not, not for, for me. No, I mean, I've I've watched this for a while, and it seems like a pretty... I, I'm not lying when I say it's definitely challenging work to be an elected official. And, um, I mean, I think that I have a pretty deep understanding of the peninsula and, uh, and the history, at least in the last 25 years. So... Um, you know, I could be a resource for anyone who's new to the area or interested in sort of, you know, stuff that happened in the past. Um, but I actually running. No, I, I can't. I wouldn't be able to. I mean, I wouldn't be. First of all, I wouldn't be able to afford it. Right. Because I have a, I would have to have this job and that wouldn't work. Um, and also, it's just not for me. Um, elected office is not for me. Okay, one of the challenges that we have on the peninsula is the same challenge all across the state, and that's housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it impacts you, too, because you have workers. And, yeah. and some of your workers, I assume, live in the city. How many of your workers don't live in the city of, uh, or live in San Mateo County? Um, I don't know. I'd say probably 40% live in the county, um, and the rest don't. Maybe 50, maybe half. Um, but we have, we have people who... Um, I think the furthest one is Livermore. Someone lives in Livermore. But, you know, we work off hours, so the commute is not that bad. Um, so what, what's the question about housing? So the question is, what's your solution on housing? <laughs> I, I know, John, right, you're right. not running for politics, so you're, you're, you're free to give us your opinion, John. What, well, do, you, what do you think that we can do different um, uh, for the housing industry? Well, I mean, I could give you a super long answer. Or I could give you, like, a, just a brief answer. Which one do you want? Well, uh, try your brief one, and brief if, one? if not, okay. I'll ask you a few more questions. Okay. Um, I mean, I think we really need to consider what what is the cause of the need, right? There are multiple causes um, that went into this over the last 30 years or so. What what created this, this uh, high cost of living here? Um, you know, people talk about housing production. I think that's, you know, yeah, we should have more housing, right? Um, but on the other hand, you know, Manhattan didn't build its way out of its high housing prices. So I don't know how much of a solution more housing um, 
is ultimately, although I think that we should definitely try, right? The more housing we have, the better. Um, and I think that if we have a variety of housing and different ways to approach housing for certain socioeconomic strata, I think that's the main thing. So affordable housing. I think we definitely need more density. The, the interesting thing for me is that, and you know this as a resident of Foster City, is that Foster City was, is a bedroom community and was envisioned as a bedroom community for San Francisco. So San Francisco had the work. And then the peninsula had the had the bedrooms, right? That was the vision back in the day, right? 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, obviously, that's changed as there's more offices in this area and Silicon Valley spread, right? So we have to change with those times. And, and the more jobs we bring in, the more housing we need to bring in. So I think that that's sort of front and center for most people. And I think it's real simple. But... Um, there are ways to, to approach housing in a responsible way. Um, and I think that there's a big fear that it's going to change what I, the, the character, right? And I do the air quotes, the character of, of San Mateo County. People talk about the character of San Mateo County, and, and there's a whole, what, what do you mean by that? And to me, it just means suburban, right? It's, suburb, it's a suburban area. It's no longer suburban, right? And so the, the definition is mid-urban, where it's moving into a urban, but it's not quite there. So... Any place that come, changes from a suburban to an urban area, there's a lot of concern about that change. And people bought their houses or moved to this area for a certain type of community, and that's changing, and it concerns a lot of people. Then there are people who came here for economic opportunity from all over the world. And for them, they feel like they want something different. And so um, you, you got to sort of balance all that out. Um, the state's helping and, uh, you know, whatever we can do together to create more housing and dense housing, um, you know, condos, missing middle, um, you know, three, four story type units in at the edges of neighborhoods. Um, I think the better, and it might bring the, the, the rents down and that would help. I think also, um, cities and, and the county should start considering ways to provide, um, economic assistance to um, potential first-time home buyers, and I think that, um, and this could be done at the federal level. It can be done at the state level. You know, you can have a, uh, you know, if you're a homeowner, you get uh, you get a, a tax break. You know, on your mortgage interest, you could get. There could be a, a way to have, um, you know, like a four hundred one k system, where you have. Um, a way to reduce your taxable income by putting money into a, um, uh, you could put money into uh, like a, a down payment type program, right? Like in your 401k. Like a 401k, yeah. right? So you can put money in, it reduces your taxable income, and then you can use that as your down payment. And you can have matching funds from, you know, uh, from something, right? So, and, and there's been some discussion about, you know, where does that come from, right? I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure, but there's, there's got to be ways that you can provide similar tax incentives for renters to get into the house, mm -hmm. just as, as you provide tax incentives for, for people who already have their home to keep their home, right? There's, there's got to be ways that we can be creative as a society for that. Um, so that's one thing. And then also just combining different resources together um, 
you know, there could be, you know, you know, the term NOAA, right? Naturally occurring affordable housing. Right, right. So there's, they're all over the place. In the 60s and 70s, there was apartments built left and right all over the peninsula. And a lot of those are getting old and they're naturally occurring affordable housing. So the rents are low because they're older and run down. They're not prime. So I know that there's a program in the county right now that, um, you know, those types of apartment buildings can be purchased and renovated and then the people who are there have the right of return. Mm-hmm. And when they're renovated, they're just they're not made top of the line, but they're made better. And so you do that and you can buy these from, um, you know, um, there's a lot of people who own these apartment buildings who are older. Um, and what happens is they they pass and then their children get it and they don't want to run it. They, you know, they don't want to fix toilets and that kind of thing or they're doing something else or they're not even in this area. And so they'll sell it and they'll sell it for top dollar. But if the county or some other you know, government agency can go in and purchase it from that, from that person at a reasonable price, or even before that happens, before the person dies, um, and renovate it and keep the people there, that's one way to do it. But that doesn't reflect in the arena numbers, the regional uh, uh, housing and uh, needs assessment. But it is another way. So I want all this to say is that every single tool in our toolbox should be employed to provide housing in this area in different ways. Well, you know, you, you bring up a good point, and, uh, and I'm going to extract what Stanford University has done, um, Kenyatta College, and they, they build housing for teachers, mm-hmm. professors, and students. Right. But when we extract what we're doing currently on trying to accomplish arena numbers, we're building apartment rentals. We're Mm -hmm. building one-bedrooms and studio apartments Mm -hmm. to make arena numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think you're adding a a real important ingredient. How how are we going to keep the workforce being able to afford to have a house or mm-hmm. a condo or mm-hmm. a single family house. So mm-hmm. I think we're not there yet. And I think right. we need to have be a little more creative with the funding process. Uh, mm-hmm. With that thought process, what, what dovetails into another issue, and you deal with it too with your drivers and yourself, and that's that's transportation, that's mm-hmm. traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be just a big hotbed. What, what's your opinion on the, the traffic problem? And when I extract that a little bit for you, the state of California established 92 locations in the unincorporated area, um, and some of them in each individual county, that are surplus, mm-hmm. uh, surplus, and they, they seem to be in a quarter transportation mm-hmm. area. Um, what's your thought process on maybe building a little bit more density in some of those areas on housing that could actually be built for ownership? I mean, I think I think it's it's fine, right? If there's surplus property, then and it makes sense, you can put housing there, right? The only issue then that I've seen emerging is that when you <laughs> You know, you want to have TOD, you want to have transit-oriented development, but but a lot of times, um, if you put rental or, or low-income housing or below-market-rate housing next to freeways, then there's an environmental impact that is unnecessarily on people of lower incomes, right? So generally speaking, the flats 101 is where, the you know, you say poor, but like it's, it's not as rich as like the hills, right? So, I mean, there's no way that, and I I wrote a column about this once, and it was almost like a joke in a way, like, why not put light rail on 280, and then you could have TOD up there? Well, the reason why is because all the rich people don't want it, right? So, you know, there's not much we can do. So, I mean, I think... 280 was one of our first environmental uh, freeways that Lyndon Johnson endorsed as the one without lights. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, okay. Lyndon Johnson did. Look so. at you. You're fun, filled with fun facts. You well, know, Marlboro yeah, Reds yeah. and 280. 
Um, I remember, I mean, this is before my, 280 was like 1972 or something, right? Yeah, somewhere around yeah, there. So yeah. before well, my time. Actually, no, actually, actually it, wouldn't have been, it would have been in the late 60s. Cause late 60s, late, okay. Late 60s for Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, so I remember, there's this woman I used to work with, and she said that when 280 was built, you know, everybody said, no one's going to go up there. No one's going to go take 280. But, you know, guess what happened? People are taking 280, right? So, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think if there's surplus property and, and you can fill some housing, you can put it there. But it is important to note that you can't just jam it by freeways all the time. It has to be in different areas. It has to be in, in responsible areas. Well, John, I, I really appreciate your time. And, and I, I wanted to kind of have a couple more questions with you, and mm -hmm. then we'll, we'll wrap up. Tell sure. me what your, your, your best experience of journalism has been with the paper that you were more than excited about what you were successful with. So, <laughs> um, what was my best experience in journalism? Yeah, in journalism okay. with the paper. Um, I mean, I think I think for me what's the most rewarding overall is the thing that we don't actually, um, it's not that we don't get credit for it, but, but no one knows we do it. And, um, and it's not something that we put in print is that we can connect people to services. So a lot of times someone will call, I'll give an example. Someone's calling and they're upset about something, right? They're very upset about something and it comes in as a complaint call. And, um, you know, they're yelling and whatever. And, and, and maybe through having a conversation with that person, I can identify what the underlying issue is. And maybe it's that they're frustrated about um, their housing situation or they need some assistance in some way, whether it be mental or health or some other thing. And so I can say, you know, I understand what you're going through right here. And because we know the community well, we can send that person to an appropriate helper, right? So that to me is rewarding, right? Being able to send someone to behavioral health if they have a drug or alcohol issue or to Samaritan House if they have a housing issue or they need food or they're desperate. Um, those are the things that... that um, I find the most rewarding and sometimes it's the most challenging uh, because people in that state aren't always rational and they don't always make sense. But I think if you treat people with respect and you're patient with them, you can find out what's going on. And sometimes it leads somewhere, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes someone will hang up and that's that. Sometimes they'll call back. and. Um, we can talk to people over time and kind of get them in the right direction. That's not our job, right? That's not our core job. Our job is to put out a paper every day. It's not to send someone out to like get help, but it is our job. And that's sort of what I find most rewarding is that we're able to find ways to help people in whatever form we can. And that's kind of like the mission, right? That's kind of like the mission that we want to do is, is help people and use our resources and our knowledge of the community to get people the help they need. Um, and that sort of help imbues our reporting and it helps how we conduct ourselves every day. John, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, I want to thank you for taking your time. I want to thank you for doing a good community service and providing of some valuable information. And thanks for speaking from your heart. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Patrick.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. You can contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com All material and content is property of Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. You can follow us on Twitter, at Podcast by the Bay as our handle, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast by the Bay. And remember, you can listen to any of our episodes anytime on any podcast site. Until next time, stay tuned.